You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens, your faithful editor and host, here today with a Star Wars holiday special. But unlike the original Star Wars holiday special, this one will not be in Wookiee, but will in fact be in English. I'm really excited to welcome here Jim Papandrea. He's the author of From Star Wars to Superman from Sophia Institute Press. That explores Christ figures in science fiction and superhero films all across the spectrum. And we have The Last Jedi coming out this week, so we're going to go ahead and talk about Star Wars, of course, and the many, many Christological images that happen throughout. So thank you very much for joining us, everyone. And to Jim, thank you very much for joining us here on the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a blessing to be on. So let's go ahead and start out right away. Uh, We're talking about Star Wars today. I'm just curious to know... Of all the characters in the original trilogy, where did you get the idea that there might be a Christological figure in there? Well, I think that the the question was not so much whether there was a Christ figure, but who was it going to be? Because it seemed to me, and especially as I watched the the original trilogy again Mm -hmm. in preparation for writing the book, it seemed to me that that multiple characters were falling all over themselves to be the Christ figure. Um, <laughs> yes. But the the question becomes, you know, which one do, did I think was uh, most intentional in terms of uh, the, the creators of the stories and, um, and, and which ones might be uh, Christ figures that come closest to the, the actual Christ and, and the, that become the best sort of analogy for Christ. And when it came down to it, uh, I determined that the uh, that, that the most prevalent Christ figure in the original trilogy was Obi-Wan Kenobi, though, as I say in the chapter in, in the book, uh, From Star Wars to Superman, um, there are points at which other people are uh, savior figures as well, including Darth Vader, but... Um, but the primary one is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the original trilogy, by the way. But yes, right. that is the- right. Ed. Even Darth Vader, in a way, that he kind of becomes a symbol of redemption by the end of Return of the Jedi. Do you see a Christian symbolism going on in there and Darth Vader's redemption? I mean, that's an obvious question now that I use redemption. But what do you think of that? Well, it's it's interesting because um, clearly there is you know the question running through the original uh, trilogy, um, and that question is, you know, is Darth Vader redeemable? Right? Uh, is he so is he so bad that he's unredeemable, or or can he be saved? And we find out at the end of the 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 third film that was released, which I guess would be Episode uh, Six, um, that he is redeemable. Uh, the problem for me, Christologically or theologically, is that what ultimately saves Darth Vader is Darth Vader. In other words, uh, he is redeemed, but he is redeemed because he switches sides at the end. And again, spoiler alert for anyone's listening. <laughs> my book is full of spoilers. But he, he is saved only because he makes the decision to switch sides and uh, protect Luke and kill the Emperor. And so uh, it, this is not a case of a savior who uh, maybe sacrifices himself to save other people. This is the case of uh, someone who sort of saves himself by finally making the right choice. Yeah, I noticed that too. And really, when you especially throw in the prequels, it almost seems as if George Lucas wanted everything to lead up to Darth Vader's redemption. But there is that point of like, well, yeah, but he's saved not even by the idea of the light side of the Force. He's just saved by suddenly realizing, oh, no, I don't want to kill my son, which, great, I'm glad that saved him. But it is an odd one, to be sure. Right. 
Right. It's it's not um, it's not the way salvation works in, mm-hmm. in scripture, in the church, and in the real world. Obi Wan was who I had in my head the whole time because I think he's sort of an obvious figure. But I'm also curious to know uh, what did you think about say Han Solo's character arc overall in terms of how it might work within Christology or theology? Right. Well, Han Solo is a classic example of uh, a hero who goes through the hero's journey, and mm-hmm. if you know anything about sort of the the um, structure of mythology and the, I, the the concept of the hero's journey. In many of these uh, stories, we have characters who go through, as you said, a, a character arc where they start out in one place and they end up in another place. And for Han Solo, his character arc is beautiful because he he starts out as an unbeliever and ends up as a believer. He starts out as uh, self-centered and disloyal and ends up as a loyal um, member of a of a so family or community. So it's a beautiful character arc. But if you compare that to Christ, the problem is, is that the real Christ does not go through the hero's journey. He doesn't have a character arc where he grows and becomes better because he came to earth as the divine son of God. So he didn't have to become better. He was already perfect when he got here. In fact, it was the opposite. He had to humble himself to take on humanity, which is sort of the opposite of the hero's journey. You bring up the hero's journey, which makes me think of freshman high school English when we read an excerpt from Joseph Campbell, and then uh, our teacher in high school made us watch Star Wars to illustrate that. And for anyone who doesn't know, Joseph Campbell had some interesting theories about how mythology works, and George Lucas was obviously very inspired by all this. But how does the hero's journey, whether it's Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Darth Vader... How does that compare to, say, the Christian idea of salvation? Well, I think that um, part of it is that, you know, one element that pops up a lot in the hero's journey, and, and I would argue that this is this pops up a lot precisely because, you know, the the Christ story is sort of embedded in our psyche. Yes. But one element that, that, that pops up a lot in the hero's journey is the idea of self-sacrifice, that often in the hero's journey, the, the character arc will go from a person who is kind of a loner and selfish to someone who is willing to sacrifice, often even sacrifice themselves or their own life for others. And so that is a clear parallel to the Christ story, right? I mean, here's Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ who was willing to sacrifice his life uh, to save others. Uh, The question becomes then, you know, what happens next? Because uh, in some of these hero stories, you get a hero who sacrifices himself in a way that it truly does save other people. And in that sense, it's a it can be a better parallel to the Christ story. In other versions of hero stories, though, you have um, variations on that theme where someone may sacrifice themselves, but it doesn't really save anyone else. It only saves themselves, case in point, Darth Vader. Or you may get a version of the story where someone will sacrifice themselves, but then what you find out is that the way other people get saved is by following that person's example. Not so much because they sacrifice themselves for other people, but because they set a good example that other people can now follow. But even in that case, it still ends up being the kind of situation where you have to save yourself by following the example uh, well enough to redeem yourself. And so that also would not be a, a version of salvation that matches with the way it really works. Have you ever heard of anyone who might have uh, watched who might have watched Star Wars and then later taken, say, a class with you and heard some Christian theology and said, oh, okay, I kind of see why this isn't all throughout our culture? Well, I mean, I, uh, I, 
I kind of overtly use things like Star Wars okay. in my classes, and so you're an awesome professor. Then okay, awesome. I would. Um, it would. It would probably be the case that I would bring it up before the students would. But uh, but of course, my point would be to say now, you know, look at the Force. Um, this idea of the Force in Star Wars. You might be tempted to make parallels between this uh, concept of the Force and God, but the problem is, is that you know. The force is nothing like the Judeo-Christian concept of God. The force is impersonal, doesn't care about you. It doesn't care whether you gravitate to the light side or the dark side. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the force has a dark side, which God does not, right? God is not about this balance of good and evil. God is all about the triumph of good over evil. Um, but the weird thing about you know the, the force and the concept of divinity in Star Wars is that at the end of the day, Evil is necessary because what they're really after is this balance of the of the light and the dark in the force. And if there's no darkness, then there's no balance. And you even have a line in one of the animated uh, the animated series, the Clone Wars. One episode, there's a line where uh, someone says, you know, that if the if the dark side and the light side of the force are out of balance, the whole universe could be destroyed. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that evil is necessary which means evil is a good thing, and at that point, the whole meaning of the concepts of good and evil uh, becomes meaningless. And also, unlike the Force, Christianity is not powered by midichlorians or whatever happened well, in the prequels. That's right, but you know, it's interesting that they did that because that was their way of giving uh, Anakin a virgin birth, right? Oh, I yeah. Mean, they gave Anakin a, a virginal conception paralleling Jesus, right, by introducing this idea of midichlorians, which, of course, now everyone, nobody wants to talk about midichlorians because <laughs> it's like the biggest embarrassment of the Star Wars universe. But what they did in creating this concept of midichlorians is they are really hearkening back to an old uh, ancient Gnostic concept of the divine spark, that some people have more of the divine spark in them than others. What that does is, though, it makes spirituality hereditary, right? So all of a sudden now, no longer is it the case that the force is available to everyone because it permeates everything, to quote, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's not true anymore. Now, the force is stronger in some people than in others because the force is hereditary. And this, this sort of creates a very Gnostic spiritual elitism that says, you know, I am a Jedi, and I can use the Jedi mind trick on people with weaker minds, and it's okay, because I deserve it, because I have, you know, I have the Force with me. And mm -hmm. um, so it really sets up this kind of Gnostic uh, dualism, which says some people are spiritual, other people are not, and too bad for them. Darn it, Jim, you're going to make me appreciate the prequels. Uh, but that is very true, like, once you introduce the concept of midichlorians, and I never even thought of it from a Gnostic standpoint... It really does mean that people are born, Anakin Skywalker was born to be powerful no matter how you slice it. And that's almost the plot line of the original, uh, not the original, sorry, the prequels to the original, is that Anakin was destined for greatness. And whether or not he uses that greatness for good or evil is up to him. And that's, okay, that's an interesting way to look at it as a Gnostic sci-fi <laughs> Well, that's right. And in fact, you know what you find is a lot of the um, a lot of the sci-fi universes that are created are essentially Gnostic. And if mm -hmm. listeners don't know what Gnosticism is, it's an ancient heresy uh, that was based on this dualism of light and dark, or good and evil. Again, uh, sort of on the assumption that that good and evil are equal opposites that need to be in balance for there to be harmony in the universe. Um, 
or or in other cases um, that you know the there's this dualism of spirit and matter where everything that's spiritual is good and everything that's of the material world is automatically bad. Um, but you know we as Christians we don't believe that because we believe God created uh, everything good and so it's a very different worldview. Uh, but it's amazing how often it keeps popping up. It's in the Matrix, and it's you know uh, it's in several of the other sort of sci-fi uh, worlds where uh, these writers, whether they knew it or not, were really um, resurrecting old heresies to create their uh, to create the the world for their characters. Yeah, and uh, when you talk about the looking at it gnostically, I always saw that, for example, in Harry Potter. And if anyone hasn't seen it yet, spoiler alert, but most recently in season one of Stranger Things. Have you seen that, by the way? I have seen season one. I have not okay. seen season two. I'm sticking to season one so I don't accidentally spoil anything for That's anyone. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's a similar idea. Of course, there's the portal and everything like that. But we see that a lot in science fiction. The Matrix is probably the most obvious, like, spirit good material bad sort of thing and you know another aspect of gnosticism is this uh the concept that if if the, everything of the material world is bad then therefore the human body is bad as well and so mm -hmm. um gnostic philosophy denigrates the human body uh in various ways and you can see this in star wars because um when obi-wan dies when yoda dies their bodies disappear they sort of evaporate there's no body left over to be buried mm -hmm. and so the afterlife is presented as a disembodied existence which is very different from the christian uh concept of resurrection and then also at the end of well for example the end of, of episode four the first movie that came out you know when uh when luke has to get that missile into the small um exhaust port and what is you know obi-wan uh, sort of appears and talks to him. And what does he say? He says, you know, don't trust your senses, trust, you know, your, your mind and the force. And so it's a very sort of mind over matter kind of thing where, you know, the mind is good, but the body is bad. It's not trustworthy. It's denigrated and uh, your senses can't be trusted and all of these kinds of things. And again, that's, that's classic Gnosticism. Yeah. And you see some of that spirituality weaving in, the Empire Strikes Back with Darth Vader's confrontation with Luke, wherein he even tells him after, again, spoiler alert, after Darth Vader reveals he's Luke's father and tells what? him, trust your feelings. And Well, there's a lot of symbolism there. The, the loss of the hand for Luke, I think, um, you know, represents the possibility that he could lose his humanity and go the same route his father did and end up as, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, more machine than man, right? Mm. Um, so, uh, and then there, there's the great reversal when Luke cuts off Darth Vader's hand, mechanical hand. And, uh, so it, it, there's a lot of symbolism there, but, um, but at the end of the day, it, uh, it still comes off being, being very Gnostic and, and sort of highlighting or elevating the idea of the mind over and against, uh, the physical world. And I think this is something that we see in general in a lot of science fiction, because when you, when you look beneath the surface and look at the subtext and you see what what kind of messages these writers are presenting us very often the message of a lot of uh, sci-fi is that um that that human progress really means the elevation of the mind the expanding of the mind and and that means things like outgrowing the need for religion and so you see this in star trek and other uh sci-fi um 
universes that, that sort of present us with humanity's future. And in that distant future, very often, uh, humanity has progressed to the point where it has supposedly outgrown the need for religion. And so, you know, sci-fi is often sending us this message that religion is what holds us back from our potential. And our, our true highest authority is really ourselves and our minds. And, and science is the ultimate interpreter of truth. And, um, and therefore, you know, if, if we want to really progress as humanity, uh, we need to leave religious faith behind because that's holding us back. And, you know, that, that uh, element, especially with Star Trek, was very intentional from Gene Roddenberry. And, and so, um, so this is one of the points of my book, I think, and that is to help people sort of go into watching these shows with their eyes open to what kinds of messages are being presented. And it's a helpful book, really. We published an excerpt for the opening of Justice League, which I would have loved to have talked with you about that movie, but that would have required me seeing it, which I'm still on the fence about. So, but I haven't seen it yet myself. Okay, perfect. And talking about Star Trek, and yeah, Gene Roddenberry didn't want religion in there, but what I'm always amused at with as a sci-fi geek and horror fan and all that is anytime authors want to get away from religion, uh, to quote Terry Eagleton when he's talking about the novels of Graham Greene, God suddenly becomes a drug where you want to get away, but you can't. And that's what I saw in Star Trek, especially after Ron Moore took over for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Suddenly, religion plays a very important part in the Star Trek universe again. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I got a chance to interview Ron Moore oh. for my book. And um, the Star Trek chapter, after the Star Trek chapter in my book, um, I have printed the, the, the transcript of the interview with Ron Moore. And so it's in the book. Oh. And you get a chance to get his take on Roddenberry and then what the writers were trying to do. And by the way, Ron Moore is a great guy, super nice I've guy, heard. very down to earth. He was so generous to give me his time for the um, for the interview. I'm very grateful, um, but not necessarily a believer, right? Mm -hmm. So he's, uh, you know, what what I think we would call a fallen away Catholic, and he most recently um, calls himself agnostic. And so it, it is very interesting the way, um, like as you say, even when um, authors are trying to remove religion or explain it away. Um, it still comes in. And, and this really I found interesting with um, studying Doctor Who because Doctor Who has also had some of the most atheistic um, producers and writers, and yet the character of Doctor Who comes through as one of the most, uh, one of the Christ figures who is most like the real Christ. Yes. Um, and so... Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much. I want your listeners to read the book, <laughs> but um, but it is interesting how uh, many of these authors end up bringing Christ into their stories in spite of themselves, even when they don't want to. It is intriguing, and Ron Moore. I know years ago when he was writing Battlestar Galactica, he often described himself as a recovering Catholic, which is right. a cheeky name for saying that. And this is true. I think anytime you're Catholic. Even just being exposed to Catholic, I know many ex-Catholics who talk about, like, they still make the sign of the cross when they're scared and things like that. And they go, wait a minute. It's hard to escape in a good way for me, but I see it in Ron Moore's work especially. Yeah, well, it was interesting because when I interviewed him, I kind of started with that. I said, you know, on Wikipedia, you call yourself a recovering Catholic. And at that point, he was calling himself an atheist as well. And I, I pressed him on that. And he said, well, over time, he's he's come to sort of accept the idea that there are things in the universe 
that he might not understand and know about and that are bigger than himself. And so now he's taken to calling himself agnostic. And I think that, you know, that is at least being honest with yourself, you know, mm-hmm. that, that anyone who really calls himself an atheist is being intellectually dishonest because they are claiming to know something uh, that they themselves would claim can't be known. And so, you know, at least uh, by if someone calls themselves an agnostic, um, I, I think at least that's being being more honest. So I, I commend him for that, but I also pray for him that he'll come back to the church. Sure. And I mean, even Richard Dawkins has clarified at several points that uh, he has some scale he invented. I really don't want to get into it because it's sort of silly, but he has like a 10-point atheist or something, and he describes himself as a 6-point and that he's an atheist but tries to be open. So it's funny how that definition can get away from us, and I, too, appreciate Ron Moore's honesty and at least acknowledging there might be something out there he's not understanding, especially, clearly, from his writing. He hopes there's something bigger out there. Yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, the question is, you know, what what are we going to put our hope into? I mean, what do we hope that something bigger is? Is it, is it a personal God mm-hmm. who not only cares about our well-being, but also expects, you know, some level of morality out of us? Or is it an impersonal force or something like that that doesn't really care about us and at the end of the day isn't going to judge us? And that's really sort of where the rubber meets the road, you know? Certainly. And also something that sci-fi cannot get away from is the idea that there is good and evil might make them equals or, you know, have a playing on an equal plane, which we as Christians don't believe. But especially see that in Star Wars, uh, going back to Han Solo, one of my all-time favorite characters, within his journey, of course... I don't care what George Lucas said. Han shot first. I have this T-shirt. This is what. This is the hill I will die on. Han shot first. I'm I'm right there with you. And all you have to do is watch the you know the original version of the of the uh, film to see that. But whatever. Oh yeah, I think it's important that he shot first because we needed to know from a New Hope onwards that Han is looking out for himself and it's actually odd when he does heroic things self-sacrificing things so that by the time we get to episode seven the force awakens uh again spoiler alert for everyone there's a lot of spoilers in this podcast but uh (laughs) by episode seven han actually is killed by his son and there's something that hero's journey you would not have seen from a new hope and that's why i kind of stick on that hill yeah i agree i agree with you uh but within the morality of Star Wars, how do you kind of see, like, how does someone make a moral decision in that universe? I'm just curious to know. Well, I mean, that's a big question, right? Because um, there, there's a lot of sort of ambiguity and even confusing aspects to to decision making. So, for example, in, um, in the one, I guess it would be uh, Empire Strikes Back, where Luke has gone to that swampy planet. Dagobah. To, thank you. <laughs> to study uh, and train with Yoda. And we get to the point where uh, Luke finds out his friends are in trouble and he wants to go save them. And Yoda is basically saying, well, no, you're, you can't go because your training isn't done yet. Now, if he, so if he doesn't, we assume if he doesn't leave, his friends are going to die. So he leaves, saves his friends ultimately. And then he comes back and like five minutes after he's back on the swampy planet, Yoda's like, okay, well, your training is complete. Well, wait a minute. Was that whole thing a test? Was he supposed to listen to Yoda and stay there and not save his friends? Or was he supposed to disobey Yoda and go save his friends? And then by doing that, he passed the test. I mean, this is these are the kinds of things that, you know, that as I think about the, um, the storylines, like sort of 
mess with my head, you know? How is one supposed to make a moral decision in a world where good and evil are, are supposed to be in balance, right? Well, what does that even mean? I mean, you know, we, we, we see in the beginning of the, of the whole um, thing when the original three movies came out, this idea that, uh, you know, there was this prophecy that some, someone was going to come and bring balance to the force, right? Well, you know, what ends up happening is Anakin shows up, and in a world where things seem pretty good, the Jedi are in power, you know, everything seems pretty cool, Anakin shows up, and what does he do? He brings, po- he brings balance to the Force by bringing in more evil. Mm-hmm. So balance is more important than good, making evil a necessity. So, I mean, that's the best answer I can give. Because I, think it, I think it's ultimately very confusing. It, it is confusing, and as a... As an awkward teen boy who read a lot of Star Wars novels, I think all of my listeners are going, no, Michael, really, you? But I (laughs) remember, uh, I want to say it was the Rule of Two is what it was called in the extended universe with ancient Sith and all that. And the idea was, if you read these books, you knew what was going to happen in the prequels because the Rule of Two was established by the Sith Lord called Darth Bane, that there would only always be between the Jedi and the Sith a master and apprentice, and that would be it. You see that, like Anakin, in a way, like that prophecy that all the Jedi are talking about in the original, in the prequels, I mean, that, yes, that's exactly what he's doing, but is that the good thing? Is, that's clearly not what the Jedi wanted, or nor is it good for the Jedi or everyone, because Anakin also ushers in an authoritarian government, one of the largest militaries in the galaxy, and oversees even the de- construction of two Death Stars, you know, planet-destroying devices that... Uh, last time I checked right. what the numbers would be, they would be in the trillions of dollars to build. Well, right, and not to mention the fact that, you know, uh, that eventually, you know, virtually all the Jedi are killed off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, the, you know, the, the interesting thing about this, and again, this, is, this shows the sort of Gnosticism and dualism of the idea of the Force, but, you know, both the Jedi and the Sith are believers, this is not a story of believers against unbelievers. The good guys are believers and the bad guys are believers mm-hmm. in virtually the same thing. It's just that, you know, they're, they're two sides of a coin. And so it is very ambiguous. And like you said, it's hard to figure out where we have a moral decision to contrast that with other sci-fi universes such as, say, Star Wars or even my personal favorite, DC Comics, where Superman is uh, – the joke about Superman, critics have called him Space Jesus forever. Right. There is actually a moral decision in the Batman movies but from Christopher Nolan, I think, did an especially great job of showing how sometimes that making a moral decision is very difficult and can even cause unforeseen consequences, which I yeah. don't – yeah, Star Wars, that's always been a confusion for me, is how does someone make a moral decision? And that would, I say, is missing. But to go back a little bit, I'm curious to look at uh, the Force in general and the idea of the afterlife. Is there any other symbolism for what the Jedi can achieve? You know, is there a reward for them, say, in the afterlife or anything like that that you've seen in the Star Wars universe? I haven't seen anything like that. Um, now, I admit I have not read the, the novels, uh, and I have not seen all episodes of uh, sort of like the animated uh, Clone Wars. Um, so I don't know if, they're, if they go into that in any of those realms. But um, I, I haven't really seen – I mean, clearly we, we see some version of an afterlife in the fact that um, both Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda – oh, and even – Anakin Skywalker. Yes. Here in in a in a vision or as a phantom or something, 
at a couple of key points in the story. So there is an afterlife, but it's I think it's you know that sort of um, gnostic disembodied you know spirit existence um, that uh, you know maybe maybe a lot of Christians don't really understand that there's a big difference between that and our concept of, of resurrection of the body. But at any rate, um, there is some sort of afterlife, uh, and and Anakin is there, right? So Anakin is redeemed, and he and uh, he's there. They even, of course, you probably know this, but. Um, in the remakes of the uh, films, where uh, the at that that ending scene of uh, Return of the Jedi, I think, where the three of them show up in in a vision, um, you've got Obi Wan, Yoda, and and Anakin. In the original version, it was the guy who played Darth Vader without his suit on, but they changed it and superimposed the actor who played Anakin. Over that, and so in the in the later versions, if you were to watch that movie again, uh, they've superimposed it. Did you notice that that they superimposed oh, yes. it? The point being that they there is an afterlife for them because they're they're there and they're able to sort of make an appearance as a maybe some 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 kind of parallel to the resurrection appearances of Jesus, but again very different in the sense that Jesus Jesus's resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He could be touched. He could eat. Um, this is not what that is. This is a sort of only uh, a, a vision or an appearance of, you know, ghostly apparition or something. Certainly, and the resurrection promises that will come back a lot better than just as a blue ghost, which I'm very glad for. <laughs> right now, and all you write about many sci-fi universes in your book. Just switch gears a little bit. I'm just kind of curious, which of the sci-fi franchises out there that are popular would you say has the clo- you talked about Doctor Hill, but would you say Doctor Who, or would it be another franchise that shows like the most powerful Christological imagery? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to say too much because that would be a spoiler. I want your listeners to buy the book, but but I'll, I will say, you know, I, I cover Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, iRobot, The Fifth Element, the Lost series, mm-hmm. Tron, Pleasantville, which some people may not realize uh, is sci-fi, uh, The Matrix. The Terminator, Planet of the Apes, The Time Machine, Doctor Who, and then a uh, collection of superheroes, including Batman, Iron Man, Captain America, Spider-Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, etc. So I, what I do at the end of each chapter is I give each character or Christ figure a score uh, based on the criteria found in the Nicene Creed. So when we talk about, uh, the, uh, when we talk about Christ being uh, eternal, uh, we talk about Christ having descended uh, from above, and all of these sort of elements that that find their way into the Nicene Creed become the criteria for my score. And each one of these characters gets a score. Um, and I don't want to tell you who get the highest scores, but the highest scores are the ones that are, I think, the closest to the real Christ and uh, portray a a, um, a more favorable parallel to the Christ story and the incarnation as we understand it. Um, but you know, you might be surprised that they're not all men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the, some of the female figures come up very high on the list. And, uh, I already gave away Dr. Who is up there as well. And, um, if you're a fan of Superman, you probably won't be too disappointed. So, uh, <laughs> so let's leave it at that. Okay. That's fair. Absolutely. Going back to Star Wars, it's at least from my perspective, I think Empire is the strongest of all the movies simply because Luke has the moral decisions, not just whether he should leave his training to save his friends, which, of course, then brings him into temptation, 
with Darth Vader? Does he forsake Obi-Wan and Yoda and his friends and join the dark side with Darth Vader to take on the Emperor or what? But yeah. did you see much of the idea of temptation in the desert or anything like that in that scene? You know, here's what I saw. And I'm not saying that that isn't in there, too. But here's what I saw. Again, I, I found this to be another one of those confusing moments in terms of Very. moral decision-making because... What did Obi-Wan tell Luke to do? He told him that he, to kill Darth Vader. He said, he basically said, you know, you're, you're gonna, so the same guy who in, in, uh, A New Hope says, you know, uh, we can't win this one. We can't win this fight, but there are alternatives to fighting, right? And then, and then gives up and gives his life, gets killed by Darth Vader to let, uh, the others escape. The same guy who does that tells Luke, that the only way out of this is to kill his father, mm-hmm. right? Now, does listen to his master? Once again, Luke does not listen to the master, and he makes a different choice, which I think we would agree he makes the right choice, or he makes the moral choice. He chooses to try and uh, find the good in his father and hopefully try to, try to uh, get his father to turn back to the light and everything. And so he chooses not to kill his own father. Ironically, though, his plan backfires. He is not able to uh, save Darth Vader by appealing to his uh, family nature and saying, Father, please. It's only when the Emperor is trying to kill Luke that then Darth Vader sort of turns and steps in. But it, um, but it, it just seemed, again, very confusing to me in terms of the, this uh, question of, you know, what what is the right decision to make here? Because he... He doesn't listen to Obi-Wan. He, he makes his own choice. It, it almost doesn't work. So anyway, you see what I'm saying, that, it, that I just mm-hmm. found this another one of those sort of ambiguously confusing uh, aspects. Very true, and it is that is a question that comes through, is the morality of killing because Luke is encouraged to kill his father, but then it seems like the narrative arc is going towards, and it, especially with the prequels, towards Anakin's salvation. So I'm never sure what's yeah. going on with that. Temptation in Star Wars, now that we're talking about it, this is literally has just come to me. Temptation in Star Wars is a very weird thing because I, I could see the temptations of the characters, but I'm never sure if they fully explored in the movie, especially the original trilogy. But do you see any of that at all? Well, I think, you know, Luke is a very conflicted character. <laughs> and, and I think uh, that, I think that, you know, they really, the writers really put a lot of, and I'm, I'm assuming this is George Lucas who's writing this, uh, really put a lot of effort into developing Luke's character. Unfortunately, his sister doesn't, doesn't get that kind of attention. She's, you know, she never wavers. She never shows temptation. She never, even when they use the mind probe on her, Darth Vader comes away disgusted, like, ah, I couldn't get anything out of her. She is solid. So even though the force is supposed to be equally strong with both of them, she never seems to be tempted. She's just a rock, and he's just this, you know, wishy-washy guy. So, uh, but again, in a world where, you know, the, the concept of divinity doesn't really care whether something is good or evil as long as the two are in balance, it's, it's really hard to talk about temptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, can, you can really only talk of it in, about it, I think, in terms of temptation to selfishness. And so, you know, uh, Han Solo collecting his his fee and leaving right when they need him most is is a a powerful moment of temptation and of course we all know what happens yeehaw he comes 
you know, right in the nick of time, which is one of the greatest film moments of history, right? When Han Solo shows up at the end there, it's, you know, it's like a stand-up and cheer moment in the theater, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he was tempted to do the selfish thing, take his money and go away and, and protect himself, and then in the end he didn't. So, um, so that's where I see that happening in there. You know, but there's a, there's another sort of bigger question here when it comes to the temptation to use violence to solve your problems because, you know, it's it's a very tricky question. I mean, on the one hand, you've got these Death Stars that are weapons of mass destruction, and so you could easily make the case any any warlike activity to destroy the Death Star is a just war, and it's kind of you know global or cosmic self defense. On the other hand, you know, the, the Star Wars universe is full of this idea that there is an evil empire and there's a righteous rebel band that is, uh, that is engaging in guerrilla warfare against the evil empire. And, uh, you know, it's too easy to sort of take this assumption that, that uh, you know, revolution is a good thing and that revolution is a, a way to peace. And, you know, I think they started to touch on this in one of the more recent films where, uh, well, I think it was Rogue One, where, you know, the, the rebels, there's, there's talk about the rebels as terrorists. Just a couple of lines. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Because one man's, you know, freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And, and uh, you know, believe me, I'm not justifying terrorism at all. Um, but we, we, we as Americans have this idea that revolution leads to peace. Because in our country revolution led to arguably something good the formation of a of a nation with human rights etc um but what you have to remember is that in other countries that that isn't necessarily the case i mean you know the french revolution the russian revolution were very bloody and very anti-christian and so it's, it's interesting that in hollywood in american film you have so many films where chaos and violence and upheaval lead to a happy ending. But you do not get that in foreign films. Foreign films, people from other countries where they know that upheaval does not always lead to peace, you get, um, you know, you get a very different kind of film that come from other countries where they're not so enamored with the happy ending because they don't think it fits with real life. Um, so I think it's important for us as Christians to sort of be a little bit skeptical about um, you know these dichotomies of evil empire and freedom fighters and and you know uh, sort of you know accomplishing noble ends through violence and stuff like that. And I agree with you 100 percent on that. Now our penultimate question: We'll be releasing this podcast when the Last Jedi is to premiere in theaters. As someone who's written so much about this, what are some things you would like to see in this next movie? I want to see Luke Skywalker. Yes. And actually hear him talk for once. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> That's right. I want to see him in more than one scene. You know, I am going to miss a couple of other characters, uh, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, that Luke's presence will sort of, you know, dominate and go back to the idea that he's the hero of the story. I'm not, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not, I don't have any strong opinions about where the story should go from here. But I but I really missed Luke Skywalker in the last movie, so there's that. I did too. I I was so surprised at the end when you know the camera pans to Mark Hamill as he turns around, and I thought to myself, oh, we're about to hear him speak, which is exciting because Mark Hamill, since his Star Wars days, has been an epic voice actor. 
That's right. Yeah. I mean, so much so, if you ever watch Batman the Animated Series like I did as a child, Mark Hamill's voice is now the Joker in every comic book I read. So he's ends on, I wouldn't even say it's a cliffhanger. It's more like Abram said, okay, we'll cut this scene in half and start up on the next one. So I'll be curious how that looks. Yeah, right, right. This has been a very fun conversation. The time went by way faster than I thought it would. But Gemma, if anyone's curious to know about you, we'll have links to your book to sophiainstitute.com for from Star Wars to Superman. But is there anywhere else folks can go if they want to learn more about you, your writing, and some of your many, many interests? Well, my website, my main website is jimpapandrea.com. And if your listeners don't know how to spell my last name, um, the easiest place to go is... Uh, drjimsbooks.com because that'll take them to my Amazon author page where they can see all my books. That's drjimsbooks.com. Perfect. And I'll put those links up on our website when we publish this podcast. Anyways, Jim, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed geeking out with you a little bit, but also learning more about the way that our Christian images can show up in science fiction, even if the authors didn't intend it. This has been a very fun conversation, and I'm going to be thinking a lot about Star Wars this week, so I thank you very much for that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. This has been great.